So we're going to, on the count of three, we're gonna just gonna say, hello, Pastor Michael. We're gonna stare at this green little dot right over there. Are you guys ready? On three. One, two, three. Hello, Pastor Michael. All right, there we're good. We're good. And hello to everyone else that's watching online and hello to all of you. Good morning and Sabbath greetings to you. Now, uh, for the past few weeks, I've been out of Elevate for a little while. That's another little confession. I, I've, been, I've been busy. I've been here and there and everywhere. And so I've missed the past few sermons. But I know that we've been talking about prayer because that was what we had discussed we were going to talk about. Uh, but I have not brought to you this morning a sermon about prayer. Rather, the result of it. So we're going to be talking a little bit about Daniel chapter 3, but before we jump in there, I have a question for you this morning. If Jesus walked in this morning into this church, into this space, would you recognize him? Sit with that for a moment. And if so, how... How is this possible? How can you know who Jesus is? We talk about this in my Religion 3 class. I, for the one or two of you that don't know, I'm a teacher at Chisholm Trail Academy, that school right down the road over there, and I get to teach junior religion. And one of the things that we talk about is uh, Daniel, and the other thing before is the revelations of God. How do you know more about who God is? Oftentimes, prayer gets lumped into these things. Prayer is actually not a way that we learn more about who God is. It is, a, it is an excellent place for you to go and reflect on what you have learned and for you to derive new in, uh, insight from that. But prayer is the place where we go in order for God to do his best work of humbling our own hearts and changing us. In other words, prayer is not the place where we go to change God's mind. It's the place that we go for, for God to change our mind. Do you hear the difference? Prayer usually gets lumped into the revelations, but it's not one of the revelations. When we talk about ways to know who God is and what he's up to, one of the revelations of God that's prominent and uh, well-known, this one right here, we call it the Bible, but it's 66 books. It's a library of books put together by people that have known and understood who God is throughout time written down and saved for us to go back to and look after. And if you study these things carefully, if you look at it in the big picture view, what the Bible's actually trying to accomplish is to show you and me who he is and what he's trying to do in our lives. Understand? It's a means of revealing God's character. When we say revelation, we often lump that in with the book of Revelation, and we forget that what it's really trying to do is reveal to you and me who Jesus is, his character. So the Bible can do that. What are other ways of knowing who God is and what he's up to? Well, you've got nature. If you, if you closely study nature, you can learn about God's attributes, his character. He's organized. He's careful, right? There's a method to the way that he puts everything together. Another revelation might be dreams. Daniel would get dreams and visions. God can talk to us through dreams and visions. He doesn't talk to me through dreams and visions. But I know that's possible. It is one of the revelations. Probably not one of the ones that's readily available to us, though, right? So we keep moving on. You know one of the ones that usually gets left out? We forget often that Jesus walked around and revealed himself as a person. And lastly, we forget that we 
are revelations of Jesus. Did you know that people are revelations of Jesus? Did you know that you can learn more about who God is and what he's up to in your life by paying attention to the people in your lives? Many years ago, I I hate that there's no irony in the way that I can say that now. Many years ago, it's better than the alternative, right? I mean, all right, I'm still alive. But many years ago, I found myself as a staff member at a summer camp, and there was this tradition each week on Sabbath to answer the question, who has been Jesus to you? And it was so constant, it was so consistent, this telling of who Jesus had been in our lives, it was something that I couldn't escape. And if you know me, if you're one of my friends, you know I don't like redundancy. I'm not a big fan of doing the same thing the same way over and over again. And this one was one thing I couldn't figure out how to change. Everyone loved it, and it just kept popping up every Sabbath, every week. And so I was just, sit, stu- I was just uh, stuck there, sitting, li- si- sitting, listening to these stories. But the redundancy of it, the consistency of it, I should say, forced me to recognize and realize each week I had to think so I could answer this question. I had to sit and ponder and look for what Jesus was doing through other people for me in my life throughout that week. And I started to notice things. I noticed patience in one of my friends. Uh, You'll know her, Pastor April. She'll serve you a drink with a smile. She's one of the most patient people I've ever met. She would sit with campers with such serenity and calmness. And as I watched the way she interacted with people, I thought, wow, maybe that's how Jesus would interact with people. It was a small little piece of the puzzle, of the tapestry, if you will, of who God was. And then I I looked at another friend of mine, Devin, and he had this, he still has this ability that kind of annoys me, to put people at ease. It, It comes so easily to him to the point that people don't even realize that he's doing it, and it allows people to open themselves up and to be who they really are around him. He can make you feel like you are the only person in the world. He's very gregarious. And I, I looked and I watched the way that people would interact with him, and I thought, maybe that's how Jesus interacted with people. I started picking up on this, watching the people in my life at camp, and then, and then later on, the people in my life at school and in my teachers' lives, and then as I grew up, my professors' lives, and as I grew up, the lives of my friends and colleagues and all the people around me, and I started to realize if we're all made in the image of God, and we are, that's got to mean that we are capable of reflecting the character of Christ to each other. We're going to jump into Daniel chapter 3 to talk about one such case in which three or four men happen to reflect the character of Jesus extremely well. Before we do, let me give you a little bit of context. We're jumping into the middle of the story. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. 
He was so thankful that he put them in charge of very important things all over uh, Babylon, and the people that used to be in charge of those things are quite angry, and they've been looking for an opportunity to catch them and get their jobs back. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel is absconded. He's gone. We don't know where he is. You can infer certain theologians like to argue over where it was that he went or why he left. It was probably something to do with Nebuchadnezzar not wanting him to be around because what was he doing? He was building the entire statue that he saw in his dream out of, out of gold. Very good. Thank you. Good, good Adventists. You do study your Daniel and Revelation. Good. All right. If anyone in the room is not Adventist, if you're visiting, it's just, it's one of our quirky traditions. We love Daniel and Revelation. There you go. You're in on the joke now. Then you find yourself in the middle of the situation where the three men did not bow down to the statue because they knew what it represented. So let's pick up with the story. We're on verse 13, Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. And before we read, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Dear Lord, as we engage with this text, with this revelation of you, we stop, we pause to ask you to do the work of revealing yourself to us. We actually know that you were doing this already and that through prayer, you help us to realize what you're already up to. Open our hearts and our minds. Help us to quiet all the distractions and other things so that we can concentrate on this text and interpret it correctly so that it can be applied to our lives and make us better servants for you. For we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, uh, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? He knows this, but he's trying to give them an out. Do you understand? You follow? Yeah, good. All right. He moves on. He gets tougher. Verse 15. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image of gold I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He tips his hand and he shows the status of his own heart. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's better than God thinks he's stronger than God, thinks he's bigger and badder than God. Do you see the character of his heart? Okay. He finished, oops, I'm, I skipped verse 16. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. This finishes off the last little piece of patience that King Neb has towards these three men, and the scene starts to darken very quickly after this point. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to, look to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from it, your majesty. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. That's a brave thing to say. That if not means that their lives are on the line. And the bar for serving God is just so high, isn't it? Moving on. 
verse 19. It was a whole other sermon that I was, but we don't have time for that. The clock's taking us seven minutes. We got all the sorts of other things to talk about. So we're, we're moving on. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He was already angry. So we, we need like a new word at this point to describe what he's feeling. He's no longer angry. He's apoplectic. He's, he's beyond angry. He's not thinking clearly. He's enraged, right? It's that moment when you become so angry that you stop thinking. Anybody? You know, you don't, you're very good people. You wouldn't know what that is. It's fine. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of his strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. 21. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown in. He didn't even take time to take their clothes off. Usually you would like make someone naked before you threw them in because it's extra, like, I don't know, it's extra humiliating to kill them. That He's so angry, he doesn't even have time to disrobe them. That's how angry he is. 24. Or no, wait. Nope. That's embarrassing. What was it? What verse am I on? 22? Thank you. Oh, we're good. Uh, the king's command was so urgent that he threw them in and it killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up to the furnace. So is this just like a sauna? Are they just sitting in like a hot room? No, it's hot enough that the the men that brought them to the furnace are already dead. And these men, these three men firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. This verse here, 24, is where things turn, and it's the reason I have come to you this morning. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. What he saw caused him to stop thinking about his stature and his position, which is everything to King Nebuchadnezzar. Men of this time and of this place and of that stature don't do anything quickly ever. It's undignified. But what he saw was so amazing that it caused him to forget himself, and he leapt up out of his seat. And what did he see? Weren't there three people that we put in there? And the, they replied to him, certainly, your majesty, we only threw in three. 25, verse 25. Look, he said. I see four men walking around the fire. They're unbound, unharmed. And this fourth one looks like the son of the gods. How does he know what Jesus looks like? Pause for a moment and consider this question. How does he know what Jesus looks like? When did King Nebuchadnezzar get to see Jesus? Did he meet him? No. Did he learn about him through his careful study of nature? Not likely. Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sit down with him and have a Bible study? No. Did Daniel draw him a picture? And how is it possible How is it possible that you can know a person so well 
that you can recognize them before you've even seen them. But, but we know. We do it today. When I was little and I was at home with my sister and the door opened, I could know which one of my parents had just gotten home, right, by the way they opened the door. And I could tell you even the mood that my mom or my dad was in by the way they opened and closed it. In fact, sometimes me and my sister, we would look at each other and be like, oh, it's mom and she's in a bad mood. And we'd run, take off, hi, right, or whatever. Has this ever happened to you? You can tell who the person is that's walking around your house from the footfall. Are you with me, church? You get to know people so well, you don't even have to see them to know that it's them. This is the thing that we were called to do. We are walking, talking Bibles, constantly being provided with the opportunity to share Jesus' character with those around us. There's an old adage that the AD at CTA likes to tell his athletes. He says, God first, family second, school third. He encapsulates it with this, with this title, Beyond the Floor. And I hear him say it all the time. And essentially, what I think he means is that winning doesn't mean anything if you misrepresent God in the process. Our goal is not to is, is to, sorry, our goal is to share the character of Christ in the way that we win our game and in the way that we lose our game. We are image bearers of the one true God. Come on, somebody. Wake up, church. You are image bearers of the one true God. You inhabit his character. We are meant to be like little gods, miniature gods. That's why he didn't want us to make idols. We are him. We are the little miniature gods enacting and working in this world. We create communities and families. We, we administer the things under our charge like God administers the things under his charge. It's what we were called to do. So I want to leave you with this thought. There is a Nebuchadnezzar in your life maybe even more than one. You were quite likely at some point, and maybe even are at this point, a Nebuchadnezzar in someone else's life. Remember to look for Jesus in others and remember to be Jesus for others. Grace and peace to you as you contemplate on these things, church. Grace and peace to you.